Hey everyone, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission and purpose to help you find and follow Jesus. And we're going to start kind of what I call a micro-series, a little series of several weeks together, uh, where we are going to look at where faith and obedience meet. The title of the series is Ground Level, Where Faith and Obedience Meet. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some ground level requirements that God lays out for his people, uh, not for us to be saved and not for us to somehow have some sort of magical life, but ground level requirements that God gives to us so that we can d- grow in our relationship with him. Now, I think you guys understand today that in life, uh, in most things in life, there are certain requirements for us, aren't they? Now, as much as we live in a world that wants to say there's no requirements for anyone, you know, we can just do and be anything we want. The fact is, for most of life, there are requirements for thir- certain things that you might want to do. I was thinking about uh, Jeanette and I, when we returned to Canada back in 2008, uh, when we came back to the country together, of course, I'm a Canadian. Uh, she is an American. And when we came back, uh, there were a lot of requirements that we had to meet for her to become a Canadian citizen. Did you know that? You're like, they didn't just let her in just because she's Jeanette? No, they didn't. You know, I didn't call 1-800-CANADA, sing the national anthem and say, hey, my wife's here. Is it cool if she becomes a Canadian? Absolutely not. There was a lot of requirements. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you are in that right now. But there was all sorts of things. First of all, she had to be married to me. Now, that's a good thing, I think, right? Anchor marriage. Isn't that what they call it? An anchor marriage? I don't know. I kind of felt used a little bit. But she was married to me, and so I was able to sponsor her into the country. Uh, there had to be proof of our relationship. Did you know this? If you're sponsoring somebody in to the country, I had to send pictures proving that we're actually, it wasn't just like an online thing, like we actually spent time together. We have a history together. Uh, there was a lot of forms that we had to fill out, tons of forms. Uh, there was a lot of payments. It seemed like every time uh, I thought I was done making a payment, there was another, for, another form, another fee, another thing that I had to do. And one other big requirement that they had is that she could not be pregnant. Did you know that? That's kind of weird, right? But you know what? She was pregnant when we got here. And uh, so we had to wait. We had to wait because there were certain tests that had to be done. They don't ban pregnant people, just so you know. But uh, she was pregnant at the time with Maximus, uh, who just turned 13 this week. Hard to believe. Man, we've been here 13 years. And um, and so there were some things that had to be put aside uh, for that to happen. But finally, we got everything together and finally got her a, a PR and then finally got her some citizenship, which there were some more forms and, of course, more money later on for that. But finally, she's a Canadian citizen. But there were a lot of requirements. In everything we do in life, there's requirements. There's requirements everywhere we go. Uh, whether it's a requirement to buy a house, you got to have a down payment, right? You got to have good credit score. Whether it's uh, graduating from university, you actually have to pass your classes. Even if they're just really uh, simple, you still got to pass them. You got to get through them. Whether it's uh, to get a job, there may be some requirements that you have to have. You can't just walk into any place and be like, hey, I want to be the VP. Uh, There's going to be some requirements there for you. Uh, Maybe to get a promotion at work, there's some things you need to do. You need to take a course. There's certain requirements that you need to meet. Maybe some of you have maybe missed out on a promotion because you didn't meet a certain requirement that they had for you. And we understand this in life. I think you guys get it. You're nodding with me. Yes, I understand, Paul, that yes, there are requirements to a lot of areas of life. But isn't it funny that when it comes to the Christian life, it's almost like we turn off a switch when it comes to requirements. We think this, we think that, you know, when it comes to to life, yes, of course, I have to uh, do certain things and I have to meet up certain standards and requirements. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we think there should be no requirements at all whatsoever. We think that God should just bless us. We think that God should just make us happy. 
We think that he should just do all of these wonderful things, uh, that we should feel his peace all the time. We should always feel the loving arms of God wrapped around us in every single moment just because we are so amazing, right? And that's how we are. And we think that. We think that in the Christian life, hey, God saved me and there was no, uh, nothing I could do to be saved. And that is true, of course. But for our walk with God and the life after we become a Christian, we think that there's just nothing that needs to be done. I can just live and do whatever I want, and I'm going to somehow have this growing, nurtured uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. But when it, that is not how God sees it, and I want you to understand that today. That is not how God sees it. All throughout God's word, we see that there are some ground level, basic biblical requirements for a stable, growing relationship with God. You know, a lot of people say, I want to be close to God. Maybe you said that. I want to feel close to God. Well, God actually does tell us how that is possible. It's not just some, uh, you know, organic or some sort of mystical thing that just happens to us. There are requirements to develop a growing relationship with him. And these are things that we're going to talk about in this series how we can grow in our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ as we seek to honor and follow his word. Now, at the outset, I want to make it very clear that I'm talking to Christians today. Okay, just so you know, this series is for believers. For those uh, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God. What I'm going to talk about over this series are not requirements for salvation. Uh, These are not uh, payments that you somehow uh, do to achieve peace with God. It's not about some status of righteousness or gaining heaven in some way. We know that you cannot attain a relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot attain uh, heaven at all on the basis of works or your own spiritual achievements. I hope that you understand that. It is only faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ that can lead to forgiveness, salvation, and that forever relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So right now, we just need to say, if you are trusting in yourself for salvation, if you are trusting in your good works, in your good looks, in your uh, money, or whatever it is, if you're trusting in that, it's nothing, guys. It's nothing. It's only through Jesus Christ. It is not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we've talked about that. Can you imagine how horrible this world would be if salvation was by works? Can you imagine the one-upping, the putting each other down? God, did you see that? I mean, can you imagine how terrible of a life that would be if we were trying to work our way? But once we've entered that faith relationship with God, what happens is that God calls us to walk with him through obedience to his word. He calls us to walk with him and have actions of obedience from his word. It was God's goal for his people in the Old Testament, and it is affirmed to us to the New Testament church as well. I wanna remind you of Ephesians 2.10 that says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So because we are in Christ, there should be some good works that flow out of it, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The idea of walk, we're gonna talk about it later, is the idea of of our, our lifestyle with God. So we should see this happening. There should be some good works. James chapter 2, 17 says, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. And so the idea in scripture is that if you're a person of faith, there's going to be a development that takes place. There's going to be some good works that are shown. There's going to be some some things that you will actually do in order to develop and to build your relationship with Jesus Christ. To put it in real simple terms, a relationship with God begins by faith, but it grows through obedience. It begins by faith and praise God for that, right? Simple, doesn't cost me anything to be saved, but it grows and it develops through faith. And so if we want to grow in our relationship with Christ, 
We must seek his word so that we know what his requirements are for a good relationship. Now, we again understand this in a personal level, don't we? In a human standard. If you want any relationship to flourish, there are some requirements to that relationship, aren't there? If I want my marriage to be joyful, I'm going to just use Jeanette as another illustration, okay? If I want my marriage to be joyful, if I want my marriage to, uh, if I want my wife to be happy, and I really do, happy wife, happy life, right? That, that is true. That is, that's in the Bible. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Happy wife, happy life. If I want her to, and that's what I should want, okay, by the way, as a husband, I should desire her joy and fulfillment. If I want those things, then guess what? There's going to be some actions that are necessary for that to happen. Did you realize that? Number one, I need to be faithful to my wife. That's a requirement for a happy wife. That's a requirement for a, long, a long-term relationship with her. I need to care for her. I need to put her needs above my own. And you know what is possible? It is possible for me to choose not to do those things. Did you know that? I can choose. I can be like, you know what? I'm just going to do whatever I want. And sadly, a lot of husbands do that. Sometimes wives do that. And they say, I'm going to live my life. You live your life. And they just don't give any regard to the other person. They basically cohabitate together. And that's a terrible way to live a terrible way to live. And, and, but I could do that. I could say, you know what, Jeanette, you just do your thing. I'll, I'll make money. You take care of the kids and everything, and I'll just do my thing. And uh, you know, we'll just pretend like everything's okay at church. I, I think that my marriage would not be going very well if that was the case. <laughs> I think you might feel a little tension in the room on Sundays, you know, uh, as, uh, as you hear loud amens when I talk about things, you know, from the back, from Jeanette, you know, that's right, that's you. Okay, you need it. Okay, so you understand, there's some requirements for me to develop and to build my relationship. I need to come home. I need to spend time with her. I can't spend all day on the golf course. I can't do those. I need to be there. I need to be there for her. But here's the thing. If I choose not to do those things, I won't have much of a marriage. And here's the point. If you choose and you make the decision yourself to continually push aside your relationship with God and ignore God's word and you try to do your own thing, your relationship with him will not be fulfilled. It will not be joyful. And you will live great portions of your life wondering, is God even real? Is what I experienced as a young person, or maybe I put my faith in Christ, is that even a real thing? And the point is that if you do not develop and work at that relationship, it's, it's going to feel that way. It's not going to be fulfilling. It's not going to be joyful. And most of all, you will not bring glory to God, which is our primary purpose. And so what we're going to do over these next few weeks is we are going to look at scriptural, biblical, godly requirements for his people if we are going to develop and have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And today, the passage is so specific because the verse that we're going to look at today literally says, God says, this is what I require of you. And so we'll make it very, very simple. In Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8, I'm going to go ahead and read it and we'll continue on. He says, he has showed the O man what is good. I'll give you some context to the verse, just so you know, we're not just picking it out of context. I'll give you some context here in a second. He says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? This is the question here. What does God require of you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Here's what it is. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. He says, what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Now, the context to this verse 
here is uh, it follows a very extension, uh, extensive portion where the prophet Micah, who is a contemporary of Isaiah, some people even believe that they worked together or maybe he even trained under the prophet Isaiah. But basically what is happening is he is pleading with the Jews, uh, both north and south Israel. He's saying at this point, the divided kingdom, he's saying to them, I, you need to repent is what he's saying. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. You need to stop going after false idols and all of the things that they're going in. And he's begging with them. And in essence, in verse number three, I'm not going to read it, but if you look back at verse number three, in essence, God is saying to Israel, he's saying, uh, why are you treating me like this? You ever say that to somebody? (laughs) Why are you treating me like that? Maybe a tear in your voice. (laughs) Why are you treating me like this? That's essentially what God is saying to Israel. They are just turning their back on him. They're falling after their own ways. And God says, well, why are you treating me in this way? He's asking them, why are you rebelling? Why are you going after false idols? He talked about uh, earlier in the chapter how he upheld his part of the covenant with them, how he provided for them. Even when they rebelled, God provided for them and and helped them. And he says to them, well, what what is it? Why are you treating me in this way? And then we come to verse number six and seven of Micah. So we'll go back a couple of verses. And here's how the people replied to God. This is what they said. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here's the short version of how Israel responded to God when he says, why are you continuing on this sin? Here's the short version. They said, they basically said this, what's going to make you happy, God? What is enough? I mean, really, what is it going to take God to get you off of my back? That's what they're saying to him. And notice the progression. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a terrible response, by the way. This is not like a positive thing. Terrible response. Look what they do. They list all of these religious activities. Notice, they say, oh, if we come to you, if we bow before you, uh, if we bring burnt offerings to you, if we, and then notice there's a progression here. They go, should we bring a calf of a year old? So now there's like a smaller value item. And then it goes to thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. To us, we're like, gross, but that meant something to them. You know, it had value, of course, olive oil and all that kind of stuff. And then they go to the very peak and they say, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body? For the sin of my soul. And they're saying to God, is that enough for you? If I give my my firstborn child, is that enough to buy your forgiveness? Will you leave us alone if we do all of these things? I want you to understand uh, the heart here. Don't you see this question? I mean, this is dripping with pride and arrogance. Notice this. They're like, God, like, what is enough? What is going to get you off of my back? Maybe you said that to your parents when you were a teenager, you know, get off my back, mom. You know, leave me alone, right? I have a teenager now, so I can say all that kind of stuff, right? I'm, jo- I'm joking. His first day as a teenager, he said, Dad, I love you. I want to do whatever I can to help you. Thank you. That was great. It was a blessing. Yeah, it was. That was good. <laughs> but notice, notice the pride and the arrogance of the people. What's going to be enough, God? What's going to get you off of our back? There's no real sense of desire for a relationship here. So what does God do? God answers them in verse number eight. And what he does is he responds with such a calculated, specific, clear revelation to them. And what he's doing is he is revealing their glaring shortcomings in their life. And the fact that even though they were God's people, they had a desperate need for him. So I want you to look back at the verse, understanding the context here. What does the Lord require? They're like, what do you want, God? And they're saying it with a bad attitude, by the way. 
And now God just says, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up the whole law. I'm gonna wrap up everything into these three thoughts. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Now, this is probably one of the most significant and profound verses in all of scripture. Because what God does here is he condenses the spirit of the entire Old Testament down into these three simple requirements for the person who genuinely wants to know God. He is saying this to a rebellious people. Honestly, they didn't receive it very well. It's him giving to us some requirements for a growing, developing relationship with God. And it's this very, very simple statement. Now, he is not giving this to us, again, to provide a checklist. God is not trying to add to the law uh, for the people there. This was not a quick fix to uh, avoid God's impending judgment upon them for the rebellion to him at all. No, God is simply saying here, I am looking for people who are not just into practicing religious activities. I'm looking for people who don't, or I'm, I'm looking for people who aren't just playing around with religion or kind of tip their hat to God, you know, and just say, yeah, God, I got you, you know, or God's with me, or people who just say, he's not looking for that. God is looking for people who love me, and because they love me, they want to be like me, and because they want to be like me, that relationship is going to grow and it's going to flourish because he wants people, he wants lives, he wants families that will reflect Christ to the world. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, I want people that are going to reflect me. And this is what God requires of us. And he uses a very specific uh, Hebrew word here, which is daras, which means to seek with demand. So literally when God says, this is what I require of you, he's saying, I require this of you. This is what I desire. As your heavenly father who has saved you and given himself for you, this is what I desire of you. This is a step that a Christian should be pursuing. So what does it mean? What does he require? Well, let's work through the verse. And first of all, he says, I want you to do justly. I want you to do, or in other words, act in a just way. God wants us to act justly. Now, this makes a lot of sense. Because if you read through the earlier parts of Micah and understand some of the history around this, what we understand is that the people certainly had abandoned justice in many ways. They had abandoned it personally. They had abandoned it uh, nationally as well. This whole scene here in chapter six has the idea of a, of a courtroom type proceeding where there's a, an accusation and a defense and a back and forth. And it's, it's a courtroom term actually that is used here. And the, and the Hebrew word that is used is mispat. We're going to use some Hebrew today. Isn't that great? And uh, that's great. I'm going to show you all the Hebrew words for these. Mispat. You can use that in, in a sentence maybe this week. And uh, it's a very unique word. It's a very unique word. It occurs 400 times in the Old Testament and it is a concept that is based on the character of God. Okay, it almost, almost exclusively it's used in context with the character of God. God is just, isn't he? God is just. God is holy, but he is just, and he wants his people to be just. And this can be used in religious and civil contexts, of course, but on a personal level, here's where it boils down. Will we do the right thing because it is right? Will we do the right thing because it is right. If you were to define this word, this mispat, it means to do the right thing. There was a major problem in Israel at the time. People were unjust towards one another and it started at the top. The leaders were corrupt. The priests uh, were, were corrupt. Judges were on the take. Uh, the land was filled with violence. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. I mean, there was all sorts of just horrible injustices that were going on, and it was a mess. And of course, as Jesus always describes, and as God always gets to, he gets to the heart of the matter, right? And the reason there was such a problem was because there was a problem of the heart. 
Where there is a fruit problem, there's a root problem. And that was so in Israel, and it's still true today, isn't it? It's true today. We wonder why our world is such a mess. Well, it's because men's hearts are turned against each other. Men's hearts are turned away from God. And so God is saying, I want you to act in a just way. I want you to repent, of course. I want you to get right with God, first of all, but then begin to act in a just rate, to just do the right things, to listen to the voice of God and act in accordance to his laws and to his standards. Proverbs chapter 21, verse three says, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. See, God wants us, church, to act in a just way. Now, we love to act in a judge way, don't we? (laughs) That's our favorite way to act. And we love to sit back and judge people and and cast judgment upon them or, or people don't meet our expectations or don't do what we think they should do. And we love to just rip on other people. I'm not talking about judging other people here. He's saying, I want you to act in a just way, meaning I want you to just do what is right. See, God is a just God. He always makes the right decision, doesn't he? When somebody stands before him on judgment day, he will be just in his uh, exacting of either heaven or hell at that point. God will be just, he will be right. And he wants that for us as well. He wants us to treat one another with justice. He wants us to treat our world with justice. Now this verse is often taken out of context, by the way, in a lot of ways for like the social justice, huge push that we see out there in our world today. And they, they, I've heard unbelievers quote this verse, you know, and for some explanation. Now, yes, does it apply in the context of treating all people equally? Yes, of course, that's what it means. Uh, but what God is trying to get across to us here as believers is that, listen, we need to just do what is right and make that our heart, that we're going to do what's right. So when it comes to our workplace, we're going to do what's right. We're going to be honest. A couple of words that connect to this in the Hebrew are honesty and integrity and just doing the right things. You know, our, our world lives with the mantra of get all you can, any way you can, and who cares if it gets hurt in the process, right? That should not be the heart of a believer, The heart of a Christian is to simply do the right thing. So we will deal uh, fairly in the marketplace. We will deliver what we promise we will deliver. We will give our bosses an honest day work. We'll treat our spouses fairly and rightly. We will treat our children in that way. As well, it means that if there's someone who's being taken advantage of, someone who's being harmed, we will step up up to their defense. Of course it means that. And we will uh, reach out for them. We'll care for them. Of course, in the local church, we have very clear, specific uh, uh, instructions about taking care of uh, the fatherless and the widows and those that need help and the poor. We're to care for them. And that's what we are to do as a church. But it comes back to the heart of the matter. Remember, God's not just talking about actions here. He's talking about the heart. And the heart is, are you just going to do the right thing? I've told you guys this before, when I used to leave the house as a teenager, and my dad is so wise in doing this. I hated it, but he is so wise. He would say to me when I would leave and I go out with my friends, or I'd be going to do something, he would say, Paul, do right. And that's all he would say. And you know what? That encompasses everything that I needed to know as a 14-year-old going out to my buddies to play basketball somewhere, and we were sometimes up to no good. Sometimes we even started making trouble in the neighborhood where I was. Never mind, you guys, you guys don't get it. Um... That was for Jeanette. She gets it. Do right. Do right. Do the right thing. That's our heart. Our heart needs to be a heart of doing right. So the question comes to us, are we any different than the world? Like I said, the world's mantra is just just roll over anybody. And unfortunately, it's creeped into the Christian world as well. And we allow that mindset of self-preservation and resistance of everyone else that is such a worldly mindset and it creeps into the heart of a Christian 
so that we don't even have correct thinking when it comes to what is right, what is wrong, how we should view this world. And so we just have to remember that he says here, live and act in a just way. You know what? It's not always the cheapest way to go, by the way. (laughs) It's not always the most convenient. Doing right is not always the best. Maybe from a worldly standpoint, it may seem unreasonable to be honest in that way and to be open in that way. But I got to tell you what, it's what pleases the Lord. It's what pleases God. And that's what it's all about. And so God says, what do, you, what do I require of you, Israel? What do I require of those of you that are, that are just falling away? You know what it is? Just do right. He says, do right. And then, secondly, he says to love mercy. Love mercy. Somebody once said, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The command here to love mercy in the context makes so much sense because the people had abandoned a willingness to show mercy in their personal lives and in their nation. The, Greek, or the Hebrew word that we have here is hased. It's a word that's used 250 times in scripture. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness, and you recognize that one. You've seen that one before. But most often it is used to describe God's role in the covenant with Israel. And if there's anything that you could say about God and his covenant with Israel, is that it was full of mercy, wasn't it? It was merciful to them. How many times you read in the Old Testament, you know, they fell away from God and they worship false idols, and then he would come back to them and they would come back to God for a little while, and then they would go back. How many bad rulers and then a good ruler and a bad, good king, bad king. I mean, so much stuff, but God was always there and he was merciful to them. And here we say we should, he tells us to love that kind of mercy. So what does that mean for us? Now, this word is actually very hard to translate into English. It has a very broad definition. Words like kindness, like I said, goodness, compassion, forgiveness, sympathy, helpfulness, and there's actually even more. But this, this word, this hased here, uh, is a love, essentially what it is, it means to show mercy and kindness to others willingly. Now that's the key here. That's why he says you should love mercy. Now, we love mercy when it comes our way, don't we? Thank you, CIBC. Thank you for taking away that fee. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. Of, you know, thank you so much. Thank you. I came in late two days in a row, and my boss didn't penalize me for whatever. Thank you. So we love when mercy is given to us. When we mess up and we go to our wife, we say, I'm so sorry. And she says, I forgive you. Thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the mercy. And we love mercy when it's come in one direction. But he says to love mercy, meaning give that mercy. Give that kindness, give that forgiveness. So when it comes personally, it's this very simple idea to show it, to uh, push it towards other people in a willing way. And here's the great thing about it. When we learn to love mercy in this way, what happens is that we love people then the way that God loves people. It helps us to understand how God looks at us. Because sometimes I say, I don't know how God could love me the way that he loves me. You ever felt that way? I have no idea why he would, would just bless me in this way and how he would bless me in so many ways. I have no idea why God would allow me to find out about him and grow up in a Christian home and all of these blessings that God has given to me. Why is it? Well, and I'm so thankful for that grace. But when I learn to give that grace, I'm beginning to understand my relationship with God just a little bit different. God's word commands us to be merciful to other people. He also states very clearly that if you are not merciful, then you will not receive mercy as well. Think about Matthew chapter 18, which is a great chapter on forgiveness. It talks about, remember Peter, how many times should I forgive, Lord? And he says, 70 times seven. People did, uh, Peter did a little quick math in his head, said the number, got it wrong. Uh, you know, Matthew, the, he, he got, no, no, it's actually this, Peter. Okay, all right. This is all of this number, what, 490, right? Now I'm like, oh, I panicked. Am I gonna get it right? 490. 490. 
And, and, and like, okay, so Peter's like, all right, if I can forgive, then after that I can just, I can kill the guy. You know, after 490 times I can, no, what's the point? God says you need to just forgive, 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 forgive. That's the point he's trying to get across. Well, then after that, he tells a parable. And the parable is of the servant who had a great debt owed to the king. And he went to the king. The king said, it's time to pay your debt. And he goes to the king and uh, he says, I cannot pay it. And you know what the king did? He forgave him his debt. Remember that? And it was a huge sum of money, huge sum of money. So what does the guy do? He just received this great mercy. So he goes to somebody who owes him like 10 bucks. I mean, the, the, the equivalent of what he owed was something like a million plus dollars that he owed to the king, and the king just forgave it all. So then he goes to a guy who owes him the equivalent of like $10, and you know what he does? I'm going to, Max is up here. He goes to that guy, and the Bible says that he takes him by the throat, <laughs> and he takes him by the throat, and he says, pay me what you owe me. Where's that 10 bucks? I need a Slurpee right now, you know? <laughs> and he grabs him by the throat, and the guy says, I don't have it. I don't have that $10. I can't pay you right now. And he calls the tax or the collectors, and they come, and they take him for $10, and they put him into prison until he can work off his debt. Well, guess what? The king finds out what happened. King finds out what happened. And guess what? He sends the collectors for that guy, and he says, listen, I gave you so much mercy, so much mercy, and you couldn't even do it to somebody else for a small amount. That speaks right there to how much we love to receive mercy, but we don't really want to give out mercy. You can, you can even equate that to God's loving kindness and mercy to us in salvation. Something that is so incredible, it's so unfathomable, but yet we turn to one another and we just, oh, give me, we just, we just go after each other for such small things. It was after that whole thing that Jesus said in Matthew 18, 35, where he said, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. See, God is a God of justice. He is a God of fairness. And if we are not willing to offer that same mercy to others, God will not show mercy to us. Biblical mercy that Hased is, uh, is, is being merciful and steadfast and loyal and being faithful to forgive, faithful to pardon other people, even when they don't deserve it even when they don't deserve it. Luke tells us to be therefore merciful as your father is merciful. Wow. You know, I wonder what aspect of your life right now is more like the wicked servant than the king. Who in your life right now are you treating as the wicked servant? You're unwilling to forgive. You're unwilling to show mercy to them. I'm not talking about the elimination of responsibility, okay? Or of consequence, we recognize there are consequences to things. Again, we've talked about this. Just because I forgive somebody doesn't mean I trust them, right? We know that. We, we understand these principles about forgiveness, but the point is we're so often like the unforgiving servant where we hold on to such things that may, may or may not be small. They may be huge things, I don't know. But we're unwilling to forgive. We're not like the king at all whatsoever. And we're certainly not like God who showed mercy and gave that mercy. You know, the culture that that God was writing to at that time is vastly different than the culture right now. But the condition of the heart is still the same. The condition of our hearts is still the same. So what does God desire from us? Does God want religion? No. Does he want sacrifices? No. Does he want your firstborn? <laughs> no, thankfully. He doesn't, Maximus, right? Thankfully. <laughs> what does he want? He wants us to do justly and he wants us to love mercy. But I got to tell you, those two are almost impossible unless this third one is followed. In Micah chapter 6, verse number 8, he said, do justly and to love mercy. And then say this last with me here. And walk humbly with thy God. Let's try that again. And walk humbly with thy God. Number three here, we need to walk humbly. 
We need to walk humbly. Now, I, I talked about it earlier. The idea of walk here is your lifestyle. So you have a lifestyle of humility along with your God. It's the Hebrew word sanua. And like has said, like I mentioned, it's actually very challenging to translate into English. Um, I think probably one of the better definitions that we would find would be the term lowly. You know, we, we talk about Jesus, meek and lowly. You've used that term. And typically in our minds, when we hear the word lowly, we think weak. <laughs> we think uh, not really able to do anything. We, we, it kind of uh, brings about a negative response. But in reality, it's a word that describes an authentic attitude of humility. We all know false humility, right? Humble brag, right? You know, what, you know, you go to that job interview, like, what is your greatest fault? I just love people too much. I, I like to give too much to charity. You know, we have these humble brags, you know, what's your greatest weakness? Uh, and, and, and this is the idea, but the idea of lowly is an authentic attitude of humility. And so when it comes to the personal application here, it's understanding uh, that it is the opposite of pride. So let's just get that out there. It is the opposite of pride. It is the opposite of sinful, selfish pride. Pride, of course, is what keeps us from a right relationship with God. It keeps us from obeying God. It keeps us from being loyal to God. So if we're to understand what it means to walk or to have a lifestyle that is humble with God, then what is the best way that we can understand it is in the terms of faith and obedience. Let me put it this way. So pride, pride says life is about me. Pride says that your life is about me. <laughs> pride says that uh, what you do should be for my benefit. The way that you live should just be for me. That is true pride. The people of Israel were like that. They treated all the other nations like that. You guys are just here for us. We are the best. We are special. And uh, as a result, what they did then is they took the covenant relationship with God then, and they reduced it to just a to-do list for them. Because it became all about them then, what I do, what you do. I do this thing, I don't, you know, I don't do this because then we're more spiritual. It is the picture of arrogance. But true humility, and especially humility that's walking with God, means this. You can write this down. I believe God, and so I obey God. Okay, that's true humility. True humility is recognizing that God is God, and I am not. That's a great thing to say sometimes, to say, God, I say this in prayer all the time. You are God, and I am not. <laughs> You are God and I am not. That is how we can approach him in a humble way. To simplify it even more, to walk humbly with God is to recognize that he is in control. And because he's in control, I can trust him. And because I can trust him, I can obey him as Jesus modeled for me. Think about it. Jesus came to this earth in a human form, right? He humbled himself, as we know. As Philippians tells us, he became obedient to the Father, even to the death on the cross. If you remember that verse in Philippians chapter uh, 2, 5 through 11, is that whole passage that talks about his humility. And Jesus, God himself, brought himself under the authority of the Father in order to provide a substitute sacrifice that would provide the perfect atonement for sin. So God, in his humility, Jesus, in his humility, it all led to obedience, right? It led to obedience. And in the same way, God calls us to do the same. We don't have the ability, of course, to lay down our life for the salvation of somebody else, but he does call us to come under authority to live our lives for the glory of God and to have a heart that reflects the heart of Jesus Christ. See, a person who has a humble heart will act justly and they will love mercy, but for that to happen, we must believe, we must be humble, and we must obey God. The people of Israel did not believe God's truth and they refused to obey it. That's why they embraced false gods. That's why they uh, went after false prophets. That's why they had such rampant sin, immorality through them. And you know what the truth is? We are capable of the same choices that they made. 
And so when we willingly choose to disobey God, you know what you're saying? I don't believe in God. One author put it this way, and I thought this was so great. He said, if we're dishonest, it's because we don't believe what God said about honesty. That truth is the best option for us. Uh, when we become angry with someone or something, it is because we do not believe that what God said about unrighteous anger, that it is a sin and it should be shunned. If we lace our speech with profanity, it's because we don't believe that unwholesome communication is wickedness that God wants to drive out of our hearts. If we don't use our spiritual gifts for God's mission, it's because we don't believe that God gave us any gifts and we don't believe that he wants us to use them for his glory. If we don't share the gospel with our unregenerate friends, it's because we don't believe that God gave the great commission to us. If we don't give our tithes to God's church, it's because we don't believe that God has any claim on our finances. In every one of these examples and a hundred others like them, the root of our sin is a proud heart, one that refuses to believe and obey God. Sin is always a result of a lack of faith in some area of our lives. And you give into the sin of, of, and you give into your lust and you give into, I mean, we could go on this all day, right? What are you saying? I don't believe God that you have a, a purpose for me. I don't believe God that you truly want me to have a pure heart and a pure mind. You know, and we, we make these decisions. I, I mean, we could go on and on and on. All of these things that we do, you know, we don't forgive, and it's because we don't believe that God wants us to forgive. We don't believe what God said, that forgiveness is a release for you, that it helps you when you forgive and release it to God, just like he forgave us of our sins. All of these things that are out there that we do, that we fall into a sin, is based on, and it comes back to our belief in God, whether or not we truly believe him. And so I just tell you right now, if there's an area in your life that you're struggling in, if there's an area of your life that is an obvious sin, and you know it's sin, I want you to look at yourself and ask yourself the question, okay, what am I not believing about God in this? Do I really not believe that he can provide for me? Do I not believe that he can walk me through this? Do I not believe that he can protect me? Do I not believe this? Do I not believe that he said this is wrong and I should avoid this and I should stay away from this? You say, oh, pastor, it sounds like you're getting all legalistic. No, 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 no. I'm not getting legalistic. The Bible is very clear, and God says, walk humbly with me, which means I believe you, God. I'm going to do what you say then. I'm going to trust you, trusting that it is truly the blessed life, that it truly is an abundant life for the person who follows after God. Some of you have never experienced the abundant life because you've never tried. Because your whole spiritual life has been resisting and fighting. What can I get away with? You're like the Israelites. Uh, can I do this? Then will you get off my back, God? If I do this, you know, if I go to church on Sunday, then I'm fine to do whatever I want the rest of the week because I kind of soothe my conscience and off I go. And we live, and we never truly experience life as God desires for us because we're, we're, we're basically, we don't believe God. We're unwilling to humble ourselves and say, God, you know what you're talking about is right. And so many times people say to me, well, culture has changed since the Bible was written. <laughs> yeah, it has. But men's hearts have not changed. The hearts of, of men and women have not changed. We are still desperately wicked, and we are all prone to sin, and we're headed in that direction. And we are always looking for excuses as to why uh, we shouldn't do what, we, what God tells us to do. And if, if, you, if you resist that right now, and you're like, no, that's not true, I'm, I'm sad to say you're missing, you're missing something that's huge. And you need to strip the pride from your life and humble yourself before God. Stop trying to fight him. Stop trying to do it on your own. He says here, this is what I desire for you. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. I don't want God resisting me. I don't want God against me because of my pride. 
Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. Truthfully, church, we live and fulfill our purpose in life when we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of God. When we submit ourselves to him. And when we walk in that mindset, when our lifestyle reflects true humility, guess what? Justice and mercy are going to matter to us. Because we're going to say, all right, God wants me to do justly. God wants me to act in a just way. God wants me to love mercy, not just mercy that I receive, but he wants me to love giving mercy and giving kindness to others. That's what God wants for me. And these things are all connected. Remember, in Micah here, Israel and Judah totally rejected the truth. And so to them, honestly, we could say justice and mercy and humility are foreign concepts to them. These things that he's talking about, and that's why God says, all right, all right, all right, enough's enough. Here's what I require of you. It's not sacrifice. It's not your firstborn. It's not all these things that you're being unkind and, and, uh, and, and being, I don't know, joking about with God. He says, this is what it comes down to. This is what it comes down to. Sadly, many Christians today, justice, mercy, and humility are foreign concepts. We have bought so much into the worldly philosophy and mindset. And I want to challenge you today, those of us who have a unique and a special relationship with God through salvation, we need to live our lives with evidence that God is real. We need to live our lives in such a way that people say, what's going on? You say, well, I just simply believe God. I believe him. I believe him. I, I believe that when he says he's going to protect me, then he's going to protect me. I believe that, you know, when my time is up on this earth, my time's up on this earth. I believe that God is going to save me. I believe that he's going to walk with me. I believe he's going to protect me. I believe God. And I'll tell you what, we live in a world today where people don't know what to believe. They only trust in their own ideals. They trust in their own pride. And they're still searching, aren't they? They're still searching. But as Christians, we can make a difference by showing people, I believe God. You don't have to agree with me. <laughs> you don't, they don't have to agree with you. But for you and for your own focus and, 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 and I would tell you abundant life, like I mentioned, you got to say, I believe God. It affects our relationship with him. And, and sometimes here's what happens. Here's what happens. We don't realize our need for God until we go through a great difficulty in a great valley. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I need God. And then we begin to get right with him. Maybe you've walked that road. You know, something's going on. And then what do we do? We confess our sin. We get right with God. We get humble before him. And then he comes and you know what he does? He comes right back, doesn't he? And he says, I'm here for you, I'm with you. And he walks with it through that valley. But then like Israel so often, what do we do? We say, all right, thanks God, I appreciate it. And we step back away from him. You take a break while I go do my thing for a while. That's not true abundant life. True life with Christ is just constantly walking. My lifestyle is a lifestyle of humility, of trust and obedience to God. God does not want our sacrifices or good deeds. God does not want your church attendance. God does not want your, you know, just I'll, I'll do this thing for God. And hey, God, did you notice I went to church today? Look, I put something off and God, hey, hey, just want, you know. God doesn't want that fake religion that Israel was so good at. God wants somebody whose heart is there. Do some of those other things uh, come a part of that? Of course they do. Of course they do. When you love what God loves, you're going to want to do what God says. Yeah. And that's, that's just the truth of life. But for us as Christians, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He says to Israel, listen, you guys, man, why are you treating me like this? And I know God says that to me. Why are you treating me like that? Why are you treating me like this? 
I'm your father. I gave my son for you. Why do you reject me? Why do you live in pride? Why do you live in bitterness and anger and without justice and you're not merciful to others? Why? Why? And I say, well, what do you expect me to do, God? What do you expect me to do? I'm trying in myself, in my pride. I'm trying, God. And he says, forget all that. Forget all that. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. This is the ground level of a relationship with God. He says, give me your heart. Give me your heart. Well, we do want to thank you so much for tuning into the message today. And if it's been a help and encouragement to you in any way, uh, we would ask that you share the podcast. You can easily do that on either social media or maybe just uh, text the link to a friend. But like I said, it's our mission to help others find and follow Jesus here in Vancouver. Uh, all across Canada and even around the world. And so you sharing the message today can really contribute towards that. Also, we would love for you to make a connection with us if you haven't already. And so the two best ways to do that is either by liking our Facebook page, that's City Baptist Church, or following our Instagram account, Baptist. And of course, you can check out our website at citybaptist.ca. We do have all of our past sermon series on there available for you to stream, uh, past services, uh, worship, and just lots of other content and resources there to encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with God. But once again, thank you so much for tuning in today. We are looking forward to next week's message. We love you, we're praying for you, and we're here for you.